on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome back. This is Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Bertel. My name is Aida Osman. And this is our election special. And neither of you are wearing yeah. your Vote Save America shirts like I am. Oh. I'm wearing my Vote Save America shirt and a bikini brief and just a kitten heel, and it looks fabulous. <laughs> I guess I don't care about democracy or looking dainty. <laughs> See? I wore mine last week. I was early Vote Save America. Mm. Mm. You went off script as far as I'm concerned. I'm right on it. <laughs> Uh, this episode is coming out a day early. It is actually election day as you are listening to this. Hopefully you have already voted or you are about to go vote. On your or way. Or you are <laughs> standing in line listening to us. I'm sorry. Right. And if you're in L.A. standing in line, take a moment to like check up and down the queue for a celebrity or two. You might see like somebody who was a commentator on, for instance, I Love the 80s once, as I did four years ago when I stood in line. I'm glad we're recording. I'm glad we took a break from me grinding my teeth down to absolute nubs this week. So this is a fun break. My anxiety level has been uncut gems. Just <laughs> It was either recording early or in- institutionalization at this point. So I'm very happy yeah. that we're talking. Gay men had an additional anxiety while watching uncut gems. When Dina Menzel appeared, we thought... Will she do a good job? Because her talents are undependable. And she did. She really did. I don't think anyone wants to be listening to this on Wednesday. Mm-mm. No matter what happens. No. So today we're going to talk about democracy in action in film and TV. Our favorite depictions of America and its little experiment. <laughs> I sounded like a slate essay. Inspiring all of us with your strange <laughs> prose, yeah. We're also going to revisit the first time we each voted uh, and talk a little bit about how our lives and conceptions of what voting means may have changed since then. And I'm very excited that we will also be joined by Radika Jones, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. We'll be right back. Election Day is today, and Crooked Media is absolutely not going to leave you all to fend for yourselves as the results start to come in that night. Join the Pod Save America host today at crooked.com slash election for an election pre-show with John, John, Tommy, and Dan starting at 3.30 p.m. Pacific, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Then stick around and watch me, as well as other favorite Crooked hosts and staff, on our group thread as the results start to come in. There's no one we'd rather be with on election night than the Cricket team, even if it's only virtually. And yes, that includes John Favreau now, because I love him. And we'd love for you all to join us at crooked.com slash election. All right, for our 
usual segment where we talk about the culture that we've consumed over the past week. I thought it would be fun to talk about democracy in culture in general. You know, I'm talking about the West Wing. I'm talking about 24. I'm talking about Scandal. Mm -hmm. What are some of our faves? What does it mean to watch shows like this now after four years of the government being a cesspool? Well, I just want to say, first of all, that generally speaking, the genre does not appeal to me because it is largely, as my mom once said about Manchester by the Sea, it's men being men around other men. And uh, with the exception of scandal. So I, I don't seek it out. I know like they're in particular West Wing obsessives. And that is still the reason we have Aaron Sorkin obsessives. Mm. But the only time I'm really zeroed into TV shows, movies of this ilk are when an either incredibly humane woman is a part of it or a diabolically evil woman is a part of it. So I'm talking about your Reese Witherspoon in election. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about your Selena Meyer. Occasionally, I could go for a Gina Davis in the TV show Commander-in-Chief. Commander-in-Chief. Remember when Gina Davis was our president, everybody? And you weren't (laughs) thankful. I remember the time. (laughs) For one season. That's right. Uh, That guy from Freaks and Geeks was also in it who also wrote Horrible Bosses. His name is escaping me right now. Yeah, I've always felt somewhat alienated from this universe in the same way that I'm alienated from like police dramas because they're also full of men. Mm -hmm. I agree. I had trouble with political shows most of the time unless they were satirical. And I think it's because I started watching, you know, getting really, really involved in entertainment and politics at the same time, which is about 2015, 2016. So it's like, how can you enjoy comedy about politics when we live in a political farce just every day? So satire stopped nourishing me. But I would say if I had to pick, I love politician actors. Like, give me an air of desperation, like give me morally corrupt, mm. give me like a very frazzled, like the optics are not good on this. Like give me, give me Veep uh, or, <laughs> or give me like a grassroots organization, Milk. Like the story of Harvey Milk was an interesting thing to watch for me or Parks and Rec because you get to see the hopefulness of democracy. I like entertainment that reminds me to be proud of democracy in a time where it does not feel easy to. <laughs> By the way, I, I just want to say that people have forgotten that recently Sean Penn wrote a book, and if you look up any excerpt of it, it is so crazily bad, and if I'm not mistaken, almost totally alliterative at random moments. He just starts, it's like a Dr. Seuss book or something. Anyway, please look this up. I'm not making it up. Anyway, go ahead, Ira. <laughs> Wasn't it about him hunting Castro? There's that, too, and then he interviewed El Chapo one time. There's a lot of confusing things to put together about Sean Penn. Mm. Well... For me, um, when I think about politics on TV and also the government, I think about the interview that I believe Aaron Sorkin did with Vanity Fair, if we're going to go back to the West Wing of it all. His concept of that show was the idea that whenever we see politicians on TV, they're either Machiavellian, a la House of Cards, or they are... Idiots, adults, (laughs) you know, like uh, on Veep, you know, Mm -hmm. or even on an inspirational show like Parks and Recreation, which was about local government. No one on that show is smart. Or, or, or the, it's, it's a very really. checkered intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> and so the West Wing, the concept of that was to be a show that was as inspiring as watching a medical drama. You know, uh, people who were real people who cared about their jobs. And what's so interesting is that show came at the tail end of Clinton's impeachment. And then the second season was into Bush's first term, you know, after that Florida recount 
drama. You know, so I feel that a lot of people loved this liberal fantasy of being able to see what government could be or what they imagined it could be. And so many people, you know, got into government after West Wing because they were inspired by the show. And it just makes me wonder, is that something that we need now? Do we need television right now that has a positive spin on government, you know, reminds us of the halcyon Obama years, you know, something that is a correction to the Trump administration. I do wonder, you know, how much the role of entertainment television is like vital in educating and piquing interest in the political world. I I think I wanted to be a lawyer because of how to get away with murder. Like it does have a strong effect on on young people and, and their willingness to get involved in politics. I think yes. <laughs> I think yes. I think now would be the perfect time. But I don't want to see anything presidential. I think I'm beyond that level mm-hmm. exe- of executive. I want to see more local and community-based television shows. Like Parks and Rec mm-hmm. is a good example of sentiment. Like that's the sentiment that I would want to hear. Mm-hmm. I also think a major part of what people like about West Wing is now what's been institutionalized about the show, which is these monologues that make you feel like you're watching somebody in control. There's, there's a, mm-hmm. a safety level to watching someone dress down a rube. And uh, I think at the time that was incredibly fresh. And now everybody everywhere is posing as an authority or sometimes is an authority. Mm-hmm. And we get that fix of slaying somebody with a speech or attempting to slay somebody with a speech all the time. So it feels really anesthetized looking back. I would hardly say you're going to watch the West Wing and find like a rad point in there that hasn't been <laughs> driven home a million times. Mm-hmm. I mean, our own politicians sort of do that even on Twitter now. Right? Mm-hmm. right, you know, they think that they are delivering some clap back, some point. Ted Cruz does it every other day. <laughs> oh God, right, <laughs> with his salt and pepper beard and strange eyes, like he, very like Frosty the Snowman near the end of his life eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I weirdly enough, as a Sorkin fan. As you all know from our discussion of the trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, I'm I'm more of a Sorkin film fan and Sports Night. I really didn't get that much into The West Wing. Oddly, I rewatched it uh, I think a few years ago, but I was not a person who was into it when it aired, and I'm certainly not a devotee. I'm not listening to the West Wing podcast revisiting mm-hmm. the show. Do you know what I? Do you know what I think is weird about Aaron Sorkin? Is I'm going to use the word checkered again. Mm-hmm. His movies and TV shows have a checkered past when it comes to casting the right actors to handle his dialogue because it's, of course, incredibly specific. And there are people like Allison Janney or um, uh, Richard Schiff who do it really magnificently, but certain people get so flat with it. Like, I thought Jessica Chastain was super flat with it in mm-hmm. uh, Molly's Game. I thought, I thought Emily Mortimer was terrible with it in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the success of what he does hinges on someone who can be not just Spitfire, but really look like they're coming up with these weird purple prosy things on the fly. It's a very specific skill set to have. Felicity Huffman had that skill. Oh, sure. Sports night. Def- also, yeah. good show. I really enjoyed that show. Yeah. I think it's time to bring her back. She's done her time. Or focus on odd, flat characters, and then Jesse Eisenberg is the perfect casting. Right, mm. right, right. Yeah. And I would say that I am more of a scandal person Mm. you know i like the machiavellian mixed with 
some sort of aspirational fantasy, you know? I think that that is a perfect blend of soap and also politics uh, that was fun, you know? I like the entertainment value. Um, just, just pure, innocent fun. <laughs> that is what I enjoy. And um, th- those have speeches, of course, but those are more emotional-based, you know? Um, there's The romance was really full-blown on Scandal. Uh, and then it sort of became like... Um, insane dynasty level twists uh and that's sort of what i enjoy i've never been a person who can really sit down and watch like a slice of life get slice of life mm-hmm. show also just because you, i mean a lot of those shows are just very white yeah mm-hmm. and i think that yeah i would love to see some local government um depictions you know like a show about someone like a cory bush i would love to see something like that see people of color, other minorities working within their communities in film and television, those kind of shows. Because I think we've seen enough aspirational white people shows, and I think we've also seen enough Machiavellian shows, you know, like we don't need another Ides of March. Mm. Wow, you really took me back to 2011 with that one. And at a screenplay <laughs> nomination that still makes me twinge. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will also say, you know what I think a, a lasting legacy of Veep is, and why I think it's my favorite show in this genre, other than it's just incredibly funny, is that, and I know it's super basic to say, it's actually the most realistic of all these shows, but I really do think in those circles, most time is spent efficiently quibbling. And I feel like that's not what happens on a show like The West Wing, where everybody sort of seems super professional all the time, and every moment is a big, historic... Yeah, uh, uh, to do. uh, (laughs) Yes, to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like people having to insult each other just to get things done quickly, which is the feel of Veep to me, feels the realist. And Mm. I also, I mean, Veep is probably my favorite in this category as well, too. And it also investigates like the draw of power and the way these politicians are addicted to being politicians. Like their career politicians and the way that they need their egos to be fed. One of my favorite scenes in Veep is Julia's character having to break up with her Muslim lover because she knows she can't run as president again with a Muslim lover. And those those like very confusing and societally correct like reads of the world are my favorite. Mm-hmm. I have a question. We get so enamored with lush, sumptuous shows like The Crown, Mm. you know? And I think that that's also because there's still this air of sophistication and glamour that is afforded to the royal family, even though they are full of racists and Nazis and inbreds uh, (laughs) and people who were mean to Meghan. (laughs) Oh, right. But um, do we have that in America you know, I mean, we'll, we'll enjoy like a Jackie, which I fucking love, mm-hmm. you know, but that's really more about Miss Onassis, you know, <laughs> and um, then there's Lincoln, of course, but, you know, I don't know many people who stan Lincoln. <laughs> and so I wonder, like, is there a reason why we are not drawn to cultural depictions of presidencies in the way that Americans and British people love depictions of the royal family and that history. Well, also, by the way, we're still waiting for the definitive pop cultural take on Trump, right? Like, I would say, like, the president show finds a way to add freshness to the just utter onslaught of Trump jokes we experience in every given medium on every given show, on Twitter, Instagram, whatever. 
but it bothers me in a way. Like, why aren't, why aren't we smart enough to, or is it just we don't want to watch it in the same way that there still is not the definitive recollection of 9-11, really? You know, we had a couple of mm-hmm. movies at the time. We had fucking Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close nine years ago, and that just confused me. That did not add to my <laughs> understanding of 9-11. It feels too soon, you still, know? yeah. It's so funny that we're getting into Princess Die and The Crown now, right? Because even that, you were feeling like, Oh, is it too soon to do this? You mm-hmm. know, like, because those stories have usually stayed within the past, not the most recent past, you know? And I think that right now, I really don't want to hear what anyone has to say about the Trump administration because <laughs> we've lived through it and there hasn't been enough time to show what effect it's had on society, you know? And I think that that is what's beautiful about the crown, you know? I, I would say that I would love depictions of Lincoln. Maybe. We've talked a lot about Abraham fucking Lincoln, and Trump talks about him all the fucking time, right? Mm -hmm. So there would be nice to get like a new definitive depiction of him that really reckons with the idea that, yeah, he freaked the slaves, but like he wasn't Jesus to the niggas. (laughs) And I wonder, I mean, I would maybe answer your question as well. I think that you guys covered that. We need like a time distance before we're interested in the storyline. But I also think Americans really... Don't appreciate like history <laughs> that that I think that we also like I think about the, the success of Shameless, the show. I mean, it's not a political show, but just that idea that Americans don't really like having that large of a psychic distance between the audience and the protagonist. Like, I think mm-hmm. even though none of the legislation proves that we care about people in the middle class, um, I think that uh, as far as entertainment goes, I, Americans prefer to see accessibility and like poverty and their lives like right there portrayed in a very mirrored way. But we also love soap and glamour, you know? That's true. Like, whether it's a dynasty, whether it's a scandal. Succession. Yeah. Succession, which is, you know, political theater at its best right now, mm-hmm. you know? I think that a glossy show about the Reagan administration in, in the height of, like, you know, 80s greed, that would be something that people could still watch. And I wonder if it's time, too, like, like again, with Milk, is in the 1970s, or we think about Miss America, the show that we just talked about. Like, I think it, mm. we need about 50, 60 years before anybody's ready to be like, ah, yes, interesting. I, and I wonder if that's the case. I, I don't know if it's a hard and fast rule, but it feels like that's what appears in pop culture. By the mm. way, I just want to say that Gillian Anderson's current move as a... I guess wild character actress. I don't know if you've seen the preview for The Crown where she plays Margaret Thatcher. Bone chilling. She really does uh, <laughs> seem to nail it and I'm frightened by her. As in, get in my mentions and talk about it because I didn't know she was capable of this sort of thing. Uh, I've loved Gillian mm. Anderson on things like The Fall and I've heard of The X-Files. Can you picture me watching The X-Files? I can't. <laughs> but, well, she's uh, also an amazing mother and like sex therapist on sex education. Oh, and, and I love her in that too. Yeah, yes. such mm-hmm. a, yeah. And Hannibal. Mm. <laughs> Hannibal, right. Yeah. I love her. She's one of my favorites. Actually, you, lastly, you know what has been stuck in my head since it was on a list of things that deal with the presidency? The song... My Date with the President's Daughter. Now, what is that? Do, I heard we- My Date with the President's Daughter. It was a Disney Channel original with Will Friedle from Boy Meets World, the older brother. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he is dating the president's daughter. Doesn't he like run into her at the mall or something and doesn't realize and then it becomes unveiled to him? I need to go watch this movie again. This feels like nostalgia waiting to happen. Well, unfortunately, yeah. now you've brought up Will Friedle on Boy Meets World. And I just want to say that his arc on the show Boy Meets World, where in the first season, he was supposed to be a cool older brother who was constantly like going out on dates and constantly leaving and Corey was the square. And then slowly he became 
among the most idiotic characters ever portrayed on the small screen. There are certain very funny jokes. In fact, he might be the funniest part of the show. There's a scene where he goes, I was thinking to myself, Kyle, that's what I call myself. Anyway, I still think of him calling himself Kyle when his name's Eric. I remember that joke. It truly was one of the um, sitcom moments where I think writers would realize that people like watching a idiotic character on TV and they make a character less smarter over the course of a series. Joey Tribbiani, for instance. Mm. Phoebe on Friends. Like, like by the end of Friends, it seemed like, can you tie your own shoes? Can you remember to eat? <laughs> and then they had to try to make him smart again uh, when he was the lead of his own show. Oh, right, which we all remember. I'm sure it's yeah, streaming which, somewhere. I'm sure it's in a stream somewhere. All, I watched all of Joey, okay? No, I, by Queen Drea de Mateo. How many seasons did that get? I'm going two? Two. two. Yep. Two. <laughs> Emmy winner Drea de Mateo. What have we done with Drea de Mateo? Well, she played an eco-terrorist on Desperate Housewives. Okay, so that takes us to about 2006. Uh, moving right along. Anything else? I don't know. She follows me on Twitter. Okay. I'll ask her. She seems like a nice person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. When we're back, we'll be joined by Radika Jones from Vanity Fair. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. We are so excited to welcome Radika Jones from Vanity Fair, Editor-in-Chief, to Keep It. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on this nail-biting day. <laughs> <laughs> I was so glad to have this on my calendar because I just feel like this whole week is going to be about having conversations with convivial people mm -hmm. and just trying to get through the time and see what happens at the end of it. Yeah. 
it's fortuitous that you're here as well because you just had AOC on the cover of Vanity mm-hmm. Fair, and it was, first of all, a gorgeous cover. Like she, Thank she looked you. excellent. Were you shocked by all of the drama surrounding the cover, or did you expect it? We expected it, mm-hmm. of course. I, nothing makes me happier than to watch AOC who is a, a true genius of the form, um, clap back <laughs> at drama that is not constructive, mm-hmm. not productive. Um, so, no, we, you know, our goal um, in doing that cover at this time was it can be hard. You know, it's Vanity Fair. We have a daily website. We're covering news by the hour, um, like most other publications these days. So, so you know, we can be in the daily conversation. That's fine. But with a monthly magazine, when you're planning ahead, cover shoots and what have you, you know, you... Um, you don't really necessarily have the opportunity to be nimble um, when it comes to the news. We push it as hard as we can, but we knew we would be coming out right around the election. And we knew it would be paramount on everyone's minds. And we all, I think, just wanted to focus on someone who is looking forward. In the case of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, someone who really, as much as she's already a star, is at the beginning of her career and who has so much that she wants to accomplish, no matter who wins the election. So that was kind of our way of acknowledging our current political moment, but also just trying to look forward on the horizon um, and think about all of the challenges that lie ahead. And she was so game and forthcoming in in the piece, which I hope you liked. And it it really, it has been a pleasure to see so many people absorb that piece and really read it and and listen to what she has to say. Celebrities who nail interviews, I'm always still grateful. It's never a guarantee. I'm always like, (laughs) you know, Lily Tomlin every time brings it. You know, AOC is uh, obviously not a a star of Grace and Frankie, but I'm always thankful when I read an interview with her because she has (laughs) such a bite every time she speaks. it, it occurred to me when you took this job, there had only been four predecessors in it because Graydon Carter had obviously been there for the past 25 years. When you take over a role that someone has had for 25 years, are you then responsible for reinventing what that job is at all? In this kind of case, yes, because the role of an editor-in-chief, which I had never been an editor-in-chief before I took this job, so I was coming new to the uh, to the idea of it myself, but I had worked at a lot of different magazines and I, you know, I had an understanding of what needs to do. But the, the role of an editor-in-chief is unique insofar as you bring your own sensibility. Um, that's part of the reason you've been chosen. That's part of the reason you've been given the opportunity um, is that you have your, your own taste and your own perspective and your own sense of priorities and what needs to be done. But you're, you're kind of finding the Venn diagram between that and the identity of the brand and kind of what the title stands for. And there are some places where the institution almost dwarfs any individual sensibility. You know, you think about something like the, the New York Times or the Washington Post, and it's not, it, it, you know, both led right now by very charismatic and influential leaders, but there's a sense that the institution is the thing that goes on. You know, you come and serve your time and you, and you go. And I think with magazines, there's a little more give and take. I did feel that I had the opportunity to reinterpret maybe what Vanity Fair stood for in the culture. And and I was looking back past the last 25 years, really, to the Tina Brown era mm. of Vanity Fair. She was the one who really reinvented it in its modern incarnation because it had been around very early in the 20th century, almost more like a, a in a sort of New Yorker vibe. Mm. Um, but Tina had made these covers and made this magazine in the 1980s, which is when I was growing up. Her big thing was she had a mix of high culture and low culture, and 
she was super interested in the idea of buzz, which meant something very different before social media, before the internet even, you know, before all of the ways that we know now how to create buzz and, and virality. But she made these iconic zeitgeist covers and the magazine really lived and kind of staked out this space at the intersection of culture and politics and entertainment and celebrity. And that energy was what I was trying to... So it, it, it almost isn't... I didn't see it so much as a reinvention necessarily, although I think if you're kind of newer to the title, it, it can look that way. And certainly we're proud of um, all of the um, innovation that we've brought to Vanity Fair, my team and I, in the last three years. But it was also kind of a recuperation of that early energy of a magazine that was quite raw and, and edgy. And, you know, I think that the times call for that. Speaking of iconic covers... I mean, I would be remiss to not mention the Breonna Taylor issue that came out. And, you know, I, I, I see that less of an issue and more of like a memento that I feel like we will all keep for a very long time. And I was wondering, you know, what was the process like for you and your team deciding to bring on ta Coates to speak with Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother? And what were, what were your biggest intentions with this story and this issue? Well, um, I'm gratified to hear you say that because that was, in fact, our primary intention was to create something that would be almost like a, an instant time capsule um, of this period that we were all living through, that we're still in. Um, we had been working with ta on a story that was actually supposed to be the September issue cover, and it ended up not coming to pass. But we were So we were in dialogue with him about this sort of other thing, which I'm not going to mention because it might still happen down the line, so we, we cannot say. We'll see, we'll see. But, uh, but then when George Floyd was killed and those protests began, one of my executive editors uh, who had been talking to ta said, well, you know, we were talking about him writing something, and she said, well, what, what, you know, would you ever be up for guest editing? And he was like, I don't even know what that would look like, but sure. And so we talked about it, and I was like, I don't know what it would look like either, because I've been here three years. We've never, I've never done it before with a guest editor. Certainly never done that on Zoom, um, where we will never ever meet in person the whole time we're putting it together. Um, and where all the reporting and photography and everything has to be done as we've been doing for the past seven months with COVID protocols in mind and what have you. But, you know, I love a risk uh, and so does he. And so we just did as one does these days. We got on the Zoom and started meeting and he started reaching out to writers and we were reaching out to illustrators and um, artists and photographers and it was very intense. We worked on it all summer, um, which sounds like a, a long time, but for a monthly is actually not long at all. And usually in the case of a September issue, which th they tend to be planned farther in advance. So we really were kind of pushing our own internal deadlines and, and our publication deadlines in, in terms of what we could accomplish. But we, we really felt, you know, one thing that we talked about early on is, look, we don't have the luxury of time. When ta wrote the case for reparations, he spent 18 months on that story. And, you know, and it's one of the major pieces of journalism of our age, and it shows, that work shows, that um, the groundwork that he laid. We talked very frankly about the fact that we didn't have 18 months. We didn't even have 18 weeks. But what we had was a sense of urgency um, and we decided just to lean hard into that and, and try to make something that would, you know, would stop people, would make people think and would make people want to save that magazine and keep it as something, an object put together with a lot of love and a lot of effort that I think re represents um, a lot of the grief and loss, but also a lot of the hope 
that we all have right now. That's the only time Keep It has been used that way in our show. (laughs) 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 Oh, good. That's that's my product. That's my product placement. Uh, speaking of that cover, um, it also reminds me of the um, Viola Davis cover, which was also such a striking cover, you know, and it was um, emblematic of um, the scorched back. Um, we discussed it on this show when it came out. I have a question about the idea of sort of reinventing Vanity Fair um, for a new audience. And um, that is two covers that have sort of been taking, you know, the idea of black trauma and repurposing them for the magazine. And my question, I guess, is um, who do you see as the main audience for Vanity Fair? Who do you see as the audience you would like to get? And, like, who were you aiming at with... um, these covers in particular? This is something that I think about often and my my thinking really has evolved the longer I spend with the magazine. I feel like it's almost like a person and I'm coming to get to know that person, even as I have obviously a lot of influence over um, how Vanity Fair manifests. But I think that fundamentally Vanity Fair has always been about aspiration. It's always been about dreams in various fields a lot of it has to do with entertainment and celebrity, but also kind of the dream and then and the temptations of power and also the power of personality and of charisma. And these are all the kind of common threads over the past decades that we've, the history of Vanity Fair together, a sense of aspiration, also a sense of privilege, which is something I think about more and more because, of course, we speak and think differently about privilege now than we did maybe 20 years ago. And I think it's important to take note of that. So... I'll tell you what has happened in the three years that I've been editor. The, our audience has grown. It's bigger. Mm-hmm. It's younger. And it is more diverse. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that I wanted. And it's an imprecise science. It's not like I'm looking for a very narrow target demographic or any. It's more just like I have a desire to expand people's notions about what aspiration is. And these days, if you have Hollywood aspirations... You know, the, the people who I'm putting on the cover, those are the people I think we think about. It's not just the starlets of yore. It's people like Lena Waithe. It's people like Janelle Monet. It's Michael B. Jordan. It's Reese Witherspoon. You know, they're people who are using power and using their own talents in ways that I think kind of expand our notions of power and storytelling and all of that. So... I felt that things had become at Vanity Fair maybe a little bit narrow in terms of what the kind of collective idea was of an ideal of someone we aspire to. And I wanted to expand that notion while at the same time still providing a magazine for a reader I think of as very sophisticated. You know, someone who is ready to actually think about things like privilege and aspiration, think about who we allow to tell our stories and think about what makes great art, and think about what we will remember about these years, 5, 10, 25 years from now. You know, what is the history that we are making right now? So again, there's no science to it per se, but I actually felt that there was space. You know, I've been working in magazines for a long time. I didn't see a magazine doing that necessarily. Like, I didn't see a magazine that was sort of broadly about the culture, about the zeitgeist, about the spirit of our age, that was kind of engaging with 
all of these concepts. And I felt like I would like to read that magazine. And ultimately, I think when you talk to editors in chief, sometimes it does come down to that. In the same way that a writer writes the story they, they've been missing and they want to read. Um, I think that that has been my hope, that I'm making a magazine that, that I had missed and, and wanted to read. Something uh, I think about is how I consume news in general, and in this case, like why I would be reading a Vanity Fair article at any particular time. And really, I find myself very disorganized when it comes to what I end up reading, what long-form stuff I read, what like short articles I read that Vanity Fair also provides. And how important is it to have specific brand identity in an era when we're all algorithmically fed news and just sort of accepting of that and accepting of... I could read something amazing in Vanity Fair, and maybe I would read something similarly amazing in Atlantic, and I wouldn't necessarily read both. If I read one, I wouldn't read the other, whatever. Right. How important is it to have an identity in a world of algorithms? It's so important. I mean, for exactly that reason. Like, if you're going to get a reader to convert, which is to say, to decide, okay, I'm, you know, I've been to this website enough, I've seen these stories, I'm going to actually subscribe to this magazine, I'm going to become a reader of this magazine, which is an, an act of identification, you know, I'm going to identify as a Vanity Fair reader. I don't take that lightly at all, you know, it's a big, it's a commitment for people, it's a financial commitment, but there's a, there's a, um, you know, you see people with the, their New Yorker tote bag, it's like they're identifying as a New Yorker reader, right? So I want those readers for Vanity Fair. And truthfully, that is our value proposition. It's like, are we giving you something original? Because there is commodity news all over the place. You can be super lazy and it will come to you. And it, it's not that that news doesn't provide a service. It does. But our value proposition is different. It has much more to do with a uniqueness of voice, original reporting. And, th- and we see over and over again that those are the stories that break through. Those are the stories that find a wider audience outside of our loyal readership. And that's what makes the readership expand because people start to realize, oh, I'm reading Vanity Fair and that's where I'm finding Jasmine Ward's voice. That's where I'm finding Michelle Ruiz with this great profile of AOC. That's mm-hmm. where I'm finding Joe Hagan talking to Joaquin Phoenix um, <laughs> and interviewing his mom. Um, we, we think and talk on my staff so much about every piece that we do, what makes it original, whether it's the voice or the reporting or the perspective, or even the ability to kind of take a high altitude view or a long view, sit back and do long lead reporting for six months before we publish the story. And it turns out that people still have an appetite to read about a scandal, say, or something, because um, almost because the churn of news is so great that there are times when things happen. I mean, we've all experienced this, right? Like, especially in the Trump administration, there's so much news by Tuesday, like you can't keep up, right? And so what we try to do is, well, you know, we're like, wait a minute, there's potential here for a a longer story. I'm thinking about, for example, remember the college admissions scandal? Seems like it happened 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. We started reporting out a story on that. We ran it six months later in the magazine and it found a huge readership because people wanted to get inside that story, you know? So what what we find happily, is that people are willing to wait if what they're going to get is quality. And for the stuff that we do that's more immediate, um, we are able to infuse it with voice, with attitude, which is appropriate for Vanity Fair, not for all publications, but for us, for our voice, and with reporting. And so we're kind of able to do all of those things together. Um, And I think that is core to the brand. Mm -hmm. 
I'm interested recently in how journalism not just lives in the world and society, but in the heart of the writers and your staff and even you. And, you know, I bet you've never heard this sentence before, but we live in a very fractured country and it's very divisive. And um, <laughs> we have a president who is constantly undercutting the use and importance of media. How does that manifest in you and the writers? And how do you guys try to re-legitimize what you're doing in this landscape? It's such an important question. And, you know, it's impossible. It literally pervades the work that we do every day. And it's really made us all the more committed to the value of what we do when we do it well. I am glad to be at a place that values fact-checking and research and copy editing. We have those structures in place and, and the magazine has had those for its entire history. And when we're checking a story and editing a story, we are aware that if we make a mistake and something goes out into the world with a, a vulnerability, not only did, can that hurt the writer, the editor, our publication, it can hurt the industry, it can hurt the field of journalism at large because it can contribute to a lack of trust. So, you know, we feel a lot of pressure to get things right, obviously, as we should, but we also feel a lot of conviction that what we do is valuable, that it is important. And I think particularly this week, you know, we're, we are going into this election, which promises to be full of disinformation and drama. You, you know, we are going into it very clear-eyed and with a real commitment to get it right. Mm -hmm. I do think there should be an OnlyFans-like service where you can sit and watch a copy editor do all his work on just one story. <laughs> and you will just sit and I, and I guess weep at everything they have to do line per line. Mm -hmm. You know, you've never seen combing on that level, reconfirming information on that level. You know, uh, it's not glamorous, but it is so... I started as a copy editor, so <laughs> I'm very partial to that craft um, and those skills. And it's really important in the same way that someone um, like Daniel Dale has become such an important fact checker of the oh. president. You know, these are these are things that we need in our culture right now. And so I, I think it's interesting, actually, that in a way, a lot of the processes have more visibility precisely because it's become important for newspapers and magazines and television news outlets and all of us. It's become important for us to show our work. Mm -hmm. Where maybe before, when there was a kind of more blanket trust from the public, you know, you could assume that everybody understood, for example, the difference between the New York Times opinion department and the news gathering department. But you cannot make any assumptions like that anymore. You cannot make assumptions that your readers know that you have gone through this rigorous process of checking and copy editing and editing and all of that. So more and more we see people showing their work and it's kind of, uh, you know, I think it's good for the profession to have more transparency. I think it's kind of invigorating. Yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed being a subscriber of the new Vanity Fair. So I want to thank you for that. One last question I have is um, we've seen throughout the pandemic, um, a sort of difference in how the general public relates with celebrity, whether it's been through like the wage gap, you know, seeing like how extremely wealthy some people are while other people are um, losing money, um, don't have jobs, etc. Um, to even something like this week, seeing Kendall Jenner's birthday party, ignoring COVID, um, and just a lot of people there without masks, um, to Gal Gadot and, you know, the Imagine video, you know? Um, what do you think our relationship with celebrity is going to be going forward, particularly for a magazine that um, 
reports on and covers celebrity. Gal was on our November issue cover, mm-hmm. and we asked her about it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and she, <laughs> as of course one would, and you know, she was like, "Look, you know, I I was trying to do a nice thing, and it just it wasn't the right nice thing." I think it's something like what she said, which I you know, which I thought was a very straightforward way to approach it. It certainly. I think did no harm, even if it did no good, um, which we can't say for everyone. But look, I think that the phenomenon of being tone deaf is not new um, to 2020. Maybe it's heightened, um, but we have all seen it before. But I, I also have to say that since I took this perch, which is now almost three years ago, you know, even at that point when the Me Too movement was gaining traction um, and Time's Up was starting and what have you, like it was already becoming apparent on the red carpet and other places, as it has periodically um, in our culture, that there was more to talk about than what people were wearing and that it was going to be all the more important for celebrities to use their platforms to do other things. And, and I, I look, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in kind of making the best effort in the zone where you have influence. We can't suddenly expect all of our celebrities to start solving income inequality for us. Thankfully, we have AOC to do that. But I do, you know, but I do think that the message comes through, you know, when there are tragedies of tone deafness. Um, I think that, that people do register that and they kind of shift their attention and, and that, that maybe is the lesson of it. I think you guys had Gabrielle Union on a couple of yes. weeks ago, right? I mean, there are definitely, there are people whose voices I think feel more elevated now and, mm-hmm. and more sharp and heightened in this moment. And that's wonderful, you know? So I, I feel like there's always, a, there's always a balance. But for us, you know, celebrity in and of itself is not necessarily interesting to me so much as how it's wielded, how it manifests, um, why we care about the people we care about at any given moment in our culture and in our history. And, and so I think those things are always evolving and it's our job to stay on top of it. It's our job to put the people on the magazine cover um, who will make you think, oh yeah, that's someone who's using his or her voice in a way that's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Radhika. Thank you for having me. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> I'm going to have to get back to grinding my teeth. <laughs> 17 minutes of pleasure. I hope you enjoy that. Um. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'd like to take you all back to... Rhoda being on television, that is when a young Louis Vertel first (laughs) stood in line to vote. It was 1972, yes. I had my McGovern sticker. (laughs) With this being our election episode and with uh, people hopefully listening to this as they are about to vote, as they have voted, or thinking about their vote... (laughs) I thought it might be nice to revisit the first time that we all voted and sort of how the concept of voting has changed in our minds since then. I'll start with you, Aida, because you are probably the most recent. Yes. 
Yeah, so I did vote for the first time in 2016, the before times, and that was my first time voting. I had spent the entire year canvassing for Bernie and helping run his campaign locally at the university that I was going to, and I was very excited about the political landscape. I was ready to go, and I went with my friends, and we had started a Democratic Socialists of Nebraska club on campus, so you could imagine it was me and three other black girls (laughs) just like dying to keep our club status as an organization. You were a-O, no C. Yeah, A-O, no C. <laughs> uh, but, A-O-C but I, plus just us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, but my, it, was, it was an interesting time because my first time voting coincided with my mother's first time voting because she had just gotten her citizenship. So it was, mm. it was actually a very cute and momentous occasion for both of us. But that morning, we'd gotten to a huge fight about a certain ballot measure. It was about um, funding the local community college. And, you know, we were all being told to vote for it by the large corporate. It was a yes on 22 situation where I was trying to explain Mm. to her that there are more ramifications than what were being told to us and that a lot of it, like large industries were trying to market for us to vote for it. So we got into a fight that morning and we'd gone our separate ways. It was a very freaky Friday situation. It was freaky Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we live in a small area in Nebraska. And of course I lived with her at the time. So when I went to go vote, it so happened that my mother was also at the polling place. And this is one of my favorite memories of my mom is running into her at the polling place and us like re-talking about our conversation that morning and me swaying her because I was correct and her, her deciding to vote in the way that I wanted her to vote. And it was just a very fond memory. We got back in the car and talked about Hillary and how excited we were for the world. And that was my first election. We lost, so I'm not necessarily batting a thousand, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was it was a beautiful and fun time, and we went and got Chinese food and cried the next day. What is this Wonder Years <laughs> I'm episode? I'm gonna say this multi cam. Yeah. Is this the so show, funny. Mom? Yeah, right. <laughs> it was such it was it was such a cute time. It is one of my favorite. Samira Osman memories. So your mom's name is Samira. That's so glamorous. Her name is Samira. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's fabulous. She knows it too. That is truly a television pilot. Yeah, Anita. maybe I'll and write it. You need to write it. <laughs> ending, ending with meeting at the polling place, and then you're getting Chinese food. Yeah, I have so many videos of her that day too, because that's when Snapchat was like really popping, and I was posting it. And she, she's a, she's way funnier than I could ever even imagine being. And she's like, yeah, I'm a black Republican, and I voted for Trump. <laughs> Like, thanks, mom. <laughs> you guys do exist. But she didn't, of course, vote for Trump. But uh, she's much, much funnier than I could be. Well, first of all, I just want to say that my first time voting was not a presidential election. It was for Beautiful Stranger on Total Request Live, Madonna's uh, Austin Powers song. <laughs> I hate that was you. When, that was when... I caught it. Yeah. I caught it. Great video. Are that you- is when VH1 was VH1. VH winning. A lot of people do not remember... Just because VH1 has now become synonymous with love and hip hop, mm. and then Flavor of Love was sort of like sort of the black reality um, craze on that network. Remember but Tila Tequila? VH1 used to be oh, for yeah. like old white women mm-hmm. and Louis Fertel. Totally. Yeah. Oh no. You know, if you well. wanted, if you wanted up to the minute updates on David Gray or Dido, or uh, uh, who else was hanging around at that time? Maybe Michelle Branch, if you were in a hard rock mood. Uh, you went to VH1. But anyway, yeah, I, I watched uh, Total Request Live, which fever pitch, like you had to eventually vote. 
the, mm-hmm. you know, the, before there was Kerry Bush, which was the first presidential election I voted in. There was mm. Limp Bizkit versus Backstreet Boys. You had to take a side, and it was like those were the two available tastes in the universe. Anyway, I'm still, mm-hmm. that right there is like the, among the most homophobic conundrums you can be in, that you have to support one of those two. I used to get angry all the time, you know, when it, when it was like Britney wasn't number one, when the NSYNC song wasn't. Corn was number one for an entire week. <laughs> oh my God, that's such a specific memory. Having to be impressed with the technical prowess of corn videos. Not that they the weren't. The Freak on a Leash <laughs> video. No, I, please. The amount of talking heads explaining to me how impossible that bullet animation was. Like, <laughs> great, we did it. Okay. Mysteriously, I share a birthday with Barack Obama and American Idol season nine, second place finisher. Crystal Bauer socks, and those are two people I have voted for. So I just want to say that. And also, and I want to slide in right here because I don't think we're going to have a spot for it. Other words, RIP to Nikki McKibben from season yeah. one of American Idol, who finished in third place. Um, That's so sad. I, it's, uh, it's like unreal. I remember you telling me that, and it was, wasn't it still like only announced on like a Facebook page at first? So mm-hmm. it seemed like it was. Not a real thing. But then I'm like, who was creating rumors about American Idol contestants passing away? Yeah, it took a full day of a news cycle for it to turn into Hollywood Reporter articles, etc. But um, I just want to say, American Idol, which, you know, energizes people to vote. That's my segue into this. (laughs) The first time I ever tuned into that show, Nikki McKibben was performing. She was singing Edge of Seventeen. The show was already a sensation by that point. And I was wondering what it was all about. And now that we're in an internet age where you're constantly surrounded by old media, like there's a YouTube video from the 70s or there's a GIF from Whitney Houston in the 90s or whatever, you're constantly seeing old stuff. It was pretty fucking wild to tune into an American phenomenon TV show and there was a pink-haired single mom singing a song from your dad's CD collection. Like that, I think, was like a weirdly... There's something about American Idol that goes unsaid, how it got us interested in old music again. Um, so I just mm-hmm. want to say that. Definitely the reason why I love the song Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas. Totally. You know, like I first heard that song watching American Idol. Uh, there's a whole treasure trove of classic music that is just in my constant rotation because, yes, I heard covers of it on that show. And I remember it got weird in later seasons when you would hear covers of like No Doubt. Yeah. Because you were just so used to songs mm-hmm. from before 1984 being covered on that show. This is how I feel about Glee. This is how I feel about Glee, just lighting totally. the fire under my ass yeah. about old music. No, it was an American phenomenon that had Burt Bacharach nights. Just think about that for a moment. That's really confounding. We need a new show that's going to introduce Gen Z to older music. Though I think there are secretly eight out there, and we're still doing this goddamn voice, which is basically a game show where you win like a cash prize at this point, as opposed to any chance at fame. But we can talk about that some other time. Um, I voted for the first time. Uh, I was in college at the University of Iowa. I was in my dorm. You could, I went right downstairs. There was this big push to just vote in your pajamas, which I did it. I'm just going to say the novelty isn't really there for me. I, per, I wish I were better dressed. It's a bigger moment than that. Um, watching him lose pretty soundly and pretty quickly was just very deflating. And then uh, four years ago when Trump won and it was clear somewhat early on he would win, but it still was dragged out for hours and hours, was among the somberest silences I ever sat in. And I hope not to repeat it. Yeah, that was a truly dark day in New York City. Oh, which is where you were. Uh, Because I was was in New York because I was working on MTV News at the time. Mm. And we were doing a live on-air election special. 
And woo. <laughs> <laughs> That's like how I, I was on air on CNN when Faye Dunaway messed up the La La Land Moonlight thing. Anyway, mm. don't be on TV when crazy things happen. It's on tape. <laughs> uh, Lewis and I are the same age, so um, we both voted in the same um, presidential election for the first time. And I remember being at Loyola University Chicago voting and then doing a watch party, you know, with some other people from the theater department. And I remember it just going on and on. And then when Carrie losing, it was truly depressing. And it was after the, um, you know, being in high school and seeing the um, recount shit happen too, you know? So it was just like back to back, um, very depressing uh, <laughs> political moments. And, you know, I'm from Milwaukee. And so even with high schoolers who like couldn't vote, you know, it was, it was just so interesting remembering political culture when you're not able to vote when you're young. And we think about like instilling voting um, into younger people and like what you learn from your parents. Like I just remember being at school and seeing like um, Bush Cheney stickers on like kids' cars. And it's like, you are 16, <laughs> you can't even vote, you know? Um, but you have a Bush Cheney bumper sticker on your car in the parking lot at school. Can I say, when I was six years old, we did a like fake election for Same, yeah. the Bush-Clinton mm-hmm. presidency. And also on the ballot was Perot at that time. And when you're six years old, I can't say I knew what grasp I had about George Bush other than he stood near a flag. Mm-hmm. But it was very normalized that Perot was a viable option. I remember a fully a third of the class I voting voted yeah. for Perot. <laughs> right. I Why? voted for Perot in our fake election. Is it because the word Perot? What, what was I <laughs> it thinking? Was because, it was because of all that. Oh, right. Oh, because oh, of uh, uh, Katrina Johnson who played uh, yes. Ross Perot. Katrina Johnson's Ross Perot is truly one of the best political performances um, that's been in like um, sketch comedy and we don't talk about it enough. What she was playing was Ross Perot was a friend to Ear Boy played by Josh Thurber. <laughs> and, uh, Who is so Ross, fucking hot right now. Indeed he is. Whenever I look him up it's rewarding. But uh, Katrina Johnson it's a very delirious uh, I would call it a risky performance because it's so broad and grating. Here's a bag of money! <laughs> I, w- I want more feedback from people on what they thought about Ross Pro at the time. I know he didn't get any electoral votes or anything, but was it just absolutely out of control that he was hanging around all the time? <laughs> was he like... Was he a Tulsi Gubbard? Bloomberg. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. you have money, go away. And his whole angle seemed to be impatience about something. Yes. Uh, I truly do not want to ever revisit all that because I remember a Thanksgiving moment and we're at my great-grandmother's house in Elkhart, Indiana, and... I'm in the living room watching all that with my sister, and I truly remember an adult looking at the TV and being so disgusted at the nonsense that was happening, just like kids shouting at each other and uh, not really sort of making any sense, and I was like, huh, was it a good show? (laughs) Or was it really just designed for kids to uh, laugh at? people yelling at each other. Right. Being loud, I think, was a big... Um, Thing in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Keenan's whole Pierre Escargot, <laughs> the joke is done after 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and I do believe he brought that back hundreds of times. <laughs> yes. And, and of course, Randy and Mandy... Just, oh. The joke was, we're spilling chocolate on each other. <laughs> yeah, that was the whole thing. There was not much in the way of character development there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Randy and Mandy that she was mad at. 
Oh, right. She was like, what is this? A lot of people uh, uh, give Amanda Bynes credit for Ask Ashley, but that was also a 20-second bit. <laughs> I don't mean to hate on Amanda Bynes. Obviously, we've given her enough guff. So. You know what? She's still the man. There you go. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I'll still bring in the dancing lobsters. Coming to Hulu in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Even through all of this anxiety, there's still anger. (laughs) There's still something. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I can centralize my focus. First comes anxiety, then comes anger. (laughs) (laughs) It has been a long, long week already. We're literally recording this Monday at 10 (laughs) a.m. But I don't know if we've all probably forgotten I have that we are in a pandemic. Mm. This is my fault for for like going on complex websites for perusing anything that TI does, but my keep it definitely goes to TI this week and some words that he said. Definitely oh. not smart. <laughs> no. I'm a <laughs> On your part, paying attention to complex or TI. Uh, <laughs> anything on complex that's not about shoes. It's not for me. If it's not Kamala Harris <laughs> buying Air Forces, it's not for me. <laughs> um, and I don't even know if that was for me. So T.I. fixed his mouth to say that you could beat COVID by drinking hot tea. Like he, he went on there and he said, it starts in your throat. COVID starts in your throat. And all you got to do is drink hot liquid and it just goes down. And apparently to him, COVID is just a throat tickle that you can swallow. Now, did he specify the tea? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Is it chamomile? It's an Earl is Grey. it a it's Darjeeling? Earl Grey with a cinnamon okay. dusting, and that's the only way. <laughs> that's the only way. To <laughs> oh, I figured um, he was under the thumb of Big Snapple. <laughs> <laughs> He's heating up Snapple. <laughs> <laughs> the TI, and the T stands for T. So. <laughs> Um, I just want to remind him that it is a viral infection with deathly respiratory complications. It it is a killer. Just wanted to remind T.I. of that. I'm sure he's listening to keep it. Uh, You can't just wash it down with fucking chamomile tea. I'm so mad. Like, you know what, T.I., look at the bottom of the cup and read the tea leaves and then tell me when this pandemic shit's going to end. Okay, that's what I want to know since you are a tea professional. Like, (laughs) he just like slapped on a Gucci suit and thought he was Dr. Fauci and Dr. Fauci would never. He's like a economical men's warehouse type of guy anyway. (laughs) We truly gassed him up in the wrong way by commending him for using large vocabulary words in his songs. Oh my God. He went, he took Expeditiously and ran with it. Like, I think he has a podcast (laughs) called Expeditiously. Like, with a T-I in it, capitalized and like bolted out. Ah, this man. And this again, I want to remind y'all, comes at the heels of him having a birthday bash, not but like a month ago when he turned 40. Sir, you are 40. You have done this 39 times. You could skip a birthday party. Like, we are in the (laughs) middle of a pandemic. Take a break. (sighs) And I'm not even going to get into it, but this is also along with Lil Wayne doing his stupid bullshit and coming out as a Donald Trump supporter and saying that the platinum plan is for black people. So niggas just been failing me this week is essentially (laughs) what's been going on. I am shocked to say that I am not surprised, but disappointed with Jack Nicholas writing that dumb fucking uh, Trump support thing where he basically Mm. says, I've golfed with him before, and I've told him a time or two that the things he says really piss me off. But ultimately, I can see he's a wonderful man. Just like, 
shutting up, always an option. If I need your advice, it's going to be about choosing an iron on like hole seven at Pebble Beach. Otherwise, I will not seek out your advice. Like, I don't need to know who was in Hitler's book club. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I don't care who he hung out with. Yeah. (laughs) That is also like last week when Jennifer Lawrence was talking about uh, how she had voted for McCain at first and came around. It's like, yeah, okay, girl, we know you're from like Trump country, but no one really ever asked you to sit down and tell us you cast a vote for Can Trump these bitches McCain? learn how to we, hide we, their <laughs> past? Hide your past. It is not good for you or your career. I actually, dis- I actually disagree. I kind of like that she opened up because I think people are clearly scared to say they voted for McCain once upon a time, not to say they shouldn't be ashamed, whatever. But it's... It actually is kind of nice to have a face to somebody who fucked up once upon a time and can acknowledge it happened. I don't know. She's so super beloved. And so a, a beloved person saying, like, actually, I'm an idiot in a way is kind <laughs> of memorable. Except isn't that her whole thing? Oh, she her, her tripping. Like, 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 yeah. like, the tri- like the tripping and, you know, the like. I'm bumbling and with David O. Russell. <laughs> I agree with you, Lewis. Letting David O. Russell cast you as an 80-year-old in every movie. <laughs> we know you fuck up, girl. I wonder if she's coming back to us anytime soon. She's uh, laying low. Passengers did her in, frankly. I would be scared myself. <laughs> she's in the upcoming Paolo Sorrentino film, Mob Girl, um, written by um, my friend and former guest on the podcast, Angelina Burnett. Oh, amazing. Paolo Sorrentino. Uh, he did Youth. What a baffling movie with a two-minute Jane Fonda cameo. Watch that. (laughs) (laughs) Or just watch the cameo on YouTube. Right, yeah. I'm sure it's there. Uh, What's your keep it, Lewis? Sometimes I have to do a keep it just because I think listeners would assume something is my brand. And then I learn myself, unfortunately, it fails what I believe is my brand. I'm Radhika Jones now. I have a whole (laughs) idea about what what we're selling. Um, Keep it to The Queen's Gambit, which is a new Netflix series based off a book about a young, uh, an orphaned girl who becomes a chess prodigy. Okay, I love savants. That's something I'm always going to want to see on the big screen. I felt, first of all, that her character is too much of a cliche of a savant in that she's amazing and then emotionally unresponsive and then has a personal demon that's constantly wearing on her. I think the performance by Anya Taylor-Joy, who is a great actress and does well with the material here, still doesn't transcend what I think is ultimately a cliche because to me the problem with this show is, and I did watch the whole thing, it's not about anything. She's good at chess, so what? It starts off, we learn she's good at chess, and then ultimately at the end, we see she's even better at chess now. There's nothing in between. It is certainly a watchable show in the way that almost everything on Netflix is. They are masters at keeping you glued, at keeping you mesmerized by visuals, at keeping everything candy-colored, and truly you will get vistas of Moscow in this show that are like out of Candyland or something. I, I recommend looking those up. But I just, the show did not give me life, and it felt like it really should have as a show that was probing specialized intelligence and a different kind of brain. Ultimately, it felt like it, it just didn't offer anything. It, it, mm. We're happy for her. Like, I just, I don't have complicated feelings about it, and I should. So you think the game was more of an imitation? <laughs> the touring machine did not turn out any cool numbers this time. Uh, I need my chess stories with like a murder mystery in it. You know, that's why I love searching for Bobby Fischer mm-hmm. when they're searching for his dead body. That's what that's about, right? And yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, that's what ser- that's what they're searching for. Or in um, the Thomas Crown Affair has that big, uh, wonderful chess scene with Faye Dunaway 
who of course just has the most wonderful hair of all time in that movie, and which then turned into the Madonna Power of Goodbye video, which is inspired by the Thomas Crown Affair. That is a chess drama I will turn into. And it also had that guy from ER in it, Goran Viznich, who I, I'm sorry to Croatia, I don't know how to say that word. I love a show that gives me um, inspiration to want to see a spinoff, though. I did enjoy the Jolene character, I, the parts that mm-hmm. I watched, so I, which easily could have been played by me, so I would like to talk to casting as to why they didn't, <laughs> you know. But I would love to see that show. That's the show I want to see. Also, she becomes a very interesting character later on, and I really liked that part of it. I, I liked mm-hmm. where that character went in particular. Whew. My keep it this week is um, to a certain subsect of gays on the internet Talk your oh. shit. who, Talk your who shit, do either. not like the album Positions by Ariana Grande. Girl, it's boring. Ooh. It is not Ooh. boring. Why don't you like R&B music, Lewis? <laughs> oh, oh, you figured it out. I don't like... But this, movie, this music is pretty fucking slow for R&B. Who's your other favorite R&B artist, bitch, Enya? <laughs> <laughs> Girl, she has the same. I mean, her style just hasn't evolved that much. Even if you like the songs, it to me it feels like it could have been "Thank You Next" again. "Thank You Next" Redux. I feel like "Thank You Next" was much poppier. And for me, this album, which is also largely written by Victoria Monet, who is it? She is the moment, and everyone should go listen to Jaguar, um, her album. Uh, I think that I have always been a fan of Ariana's Who Loves Let Me Love You with Lil Wayne, unfortunately, Lil Wayne. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, <laughs> every day with Future, you know? Like, I've loved Love Me Harder, The Weeknd, you know? And I've loved her dipping into her pop R&B tones. And this album, feel. I remember when she came out and there were all the Mariah Carey comparisons because she was able to do the whistle. And um, she sort of got away from that with, like, Break Free and Into You. You know, she was giving, like, the pop girls a little something to vibe to. And I think that she is really settling into the Mariah face again. This album feels very um, music box to me. I concur on that. I personally am missing the gene that allows you to believe Ariana Grande is a legitimate R&B artist. I still feel always I am looking at a white woman from Boca Raton, Florida, <laughs> who is constantly acting the part of, and I'm a cool baby. She, like, she is still cool baby to me. And I, I, I know she has stands, and I, and I like several of her singles. My favorite is still The Way, still my favorite song of hers. But the album, to me, felt a little... Samey. It felt, it felt samey. I don't see her as a baby anymore. This album is for fucking Lewis. Right. Now, which I don't believe she does. That's another if thing. Y'all go out and, if y'all go out and fuck to positions, you will like it. Let's talk about fucking to music. Do people really do it? One time. Yes! I, I, I will say this. I will say this. I was dating a guy one time, and we happened to be, I don't know if somebody's computer was on or whatever, but literally, Sade came on, and do you know what we felt like? Mm-hmm. Losers. It made me Yo, feel like a loser. I remember being in a dorm room and I just having a general shuffle on, and Piano Man by Billy Joel started playing, and like I had to shut the whole sex down. Like you can't <laughs> be having sex to a harmonica. That's insane. <laughs> I was dragged for playing Drake during sex once. Oh, but practice from Take Care. That's a song you fuck to. <laughs> yes. But that's the thing with Ariana is I don't believe that she's as sexual as she's trying to put off. Remember the side to side song that was one of the most uncomfortable moments of my entire life my adult life Mm. ariana (laughs) (laughs) oh my god nikki truly maybe what the album is missing is a feature from nikki because i love their friendship Mm -hmm. 
you know, underrated the song Bed from Nikki's album Queen. Um, her and um, Ari, and also Get On Your Knees, another Get on your Nikki knees. song featuring Ari. Yeah, you know, like she just needs her on there again. But also the pop gays were mean to Nikki when she was on The Light Is Coming, <laughs> which is also a great song. I'm sorry, I love Sweetener more than I love Thank You Next. And I'm just, I'm putting that out there. I will say, I think Ari should be proud of herself because to me, Breathing is now her signature song. Like when I think of her style, I think of that. And that is a real evolution from what she once was. So, you know, she's like a world apart from Problem with Iggy Azalea, for example. Mm -hmm. I think people will revisit this. You know, I mean, the whistle alone, the, the verse she sings in the whistle tone on my hair, chills. Makes me feel sexy when I'm driving around in my car. Everybody go 69, your lover. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play it for myself later in my bedroom. Uh, but the, at the end of 34 plus 35, when she explains it adds up to 69 or whatever, she says that is pretty funny. Means I want a 69 with yeah. you. <laughs> and she's like, I love math. <laughs> she's still funny. She's so fucking hilarious. I think she wants to be cooler than funny and people mistake one for the other. That's a whole other internet culture thing we can get into. I'd like to thank you all for listening to Keep It on Election Day. Child, when we see you next week. We're going to look like we touched an electrified doorbell, like our hair is going to yeah. be ablaze. Yeah. We'll yeah. figure out which type of unrest we'll all be dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Love next you. week, <laughs> we have Lara Trump on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, honestly, don't even know what next week's episode will be, but we'll see you then. Thank you again to Radika Jones for joining us. That's all. Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Mokonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 